Hey y'all, thanks for tuning in to this week's recording of Redeemer Church of Knoxville's Sunday Sermon. We're really glad to have you with us because we know that there are a million different podcasts that you could be listening to right now. So we're thankful that you've chosen to spend some of your day with us. We hope that this recording will be an encouragement to you and that God, by his spirit, will use his word to remind you of Jesus' love. If you would like to reach out to us, we would love to hear from you. To do that, please email us at office at redeemerknoxville.org. We also want to give a quick thank you shout out to Evie Andrus and Parker Green, who you hear playing our awesome intro and outro music here each week. Lastly, if you'd like to support Redeemer and her mission to Urban and University Knoxville, please visit www.redeemerknoxville.org and look for the little give button in the top right corner. Thank you so much, and here is this week's sermon. Well, if you have a Bible and you would like to follow along with me, you can do so by turning to Luke chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 57 through 80. Uh, If uh, you can follow along with me in the Pew Bible, you might have brought your own Bible. You might have a smartphone Bible. It's also provided for you uh, free of charge in your bulletin. Uh, And I would uh, encourage you, if you have access to a Bible, to look look at it because we are going to look at a few other passages as well. I do want to welcome you uh, to Redeemer this morning. It's great to have you with us. My name is Sean. Slate on the pastor here. And we're so glad that you're with us because we know that there are a million different things that you could be doing this morning. For instance, you could be returning home from a fantastic Thanksgiving feast with your family. Uh, you could be at home watching the new Christmas special, Christmas on Mistletoe Farm, which sounds amazing. Or you could be uh, booking your hotel room in Chattanooga so that you can watch West High School win the state championship on Friday, which we're really excited about. Uh, but you're not doing any of those things right now. You're here here, and we're really glad you're here. Thank you for coming. And the reality is that there really is nothing better that you could do with your time than worship Jesus, consider his claims upon your life, and think about the kindness and the beauty and the power of his salvation. And so I really do want to thank you for joining us this morning. Welcome to Redeemer. What is Redeemer? Well, Redeemer is a church, and what that means is that we're a community of people who are trying to learn how to love God, and we're trying to learn how to love our neighbor. And fundamentally, what we believe is that Jesus is God. He's the Messiah. And he's entered into the world to die for our sins and to reveal the love of the Father. And so every week as his people, we gather together in his name to worship him so that we might learn to rest in that love that God has for us in Christ. And as we rest in his love, we then become a people who delight to gather together in community. We love uh, to spend time with each other. We love to get food together and get drinks together. But we really love to read the Bible and pray together so that we can remind each other of that great love that God has for us in Jesus. And so as we rest in his love and as we remind each other of his love, we then become a people who delight to gather together in service so that together we might reflect the love of God to our family, to our friends, to our neighbors who are here in Urban and University Knoxville. And hopefully in some way it would spill out into the entire earth, right? That's who we are. We're people who are trying to learn how to love God, trying to learn how to love our neighbor as we rest, as we remind and as we reflect. And so to help us do that during this Advent season, we're beginning this new series that we've entitled The Glorious Song of Old. And what we're going to do is throughout this series is we're going to look back at some of the first disciples of Jesus and how they longed for, the, for that glorious song to be fulfilled and how they walked in silence as they waited for God to do all that he had promised to do. 
And so this morning, we're going to look at Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, as God turns his silence into song, right? From silence to song. And so with that in mind, let's look together. Luke chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 57 uh, down through 80. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness And in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Would you pray with me now for the teaching? Holy Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are thankful that you are a God not hidden nor silent, but one who delights to make yourself known. And you've done this in your word and by your Holy Spirit, and ultimately you've done this in the person and work of Jesus. And so it's our prayer now uh, that as we pause and attend unto your word, that in your kindness you would attend unto us, that we would see lovely things of you in this your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, the Chicago Bulls of the 80s and 90s changed the way uh, teams will come out onto the floor. Uh, if you're my age or if during COVID you watched The Last Dance, you probably remember the lights at the United Center going dark. You probably remember that adrenaline-filled guitar riff by the Alan Parsons Project. You probably remember the laser light shows and all the highlights that were up on the Jumbotron and the crowd going insanely wild as Steve Kerr and Scottie Pippen and Michael Jordan were announced and they went out onto the court. 
And that's kind of the way many of us think Advent ought to be. (laughs) These four weeks ought to exist to sort of pump us up and get us ready for that big day, to turn our attention to our Christmas list and to remind us or to warn us that Christmas is coming, the goose is getting fat, please put a penny in the old man's hat, as the Muppets used to sing. Uh, but, uh, But in the Christian year, what I want you to know is that Advent is its own thing. Advent isn't merely prep work for the high holy day of Christmas. Instead, Advent is meant to silence us before God as we prepare for his coming. If you're not familiar with the Christian calendar, the Christian calendar is really just meant to retell the story of Jesus throughout the year. And so the first day of the Christian year is actually Christmas. And then there are 12 days of Christmas that retell the incarnation of God into this world. And then following Christmas, we have this season that we call Epiphany. And that's the season where, as God's church, we celebrate God's mission going out into the entire world. And so we love that Bible verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And during Epiphany, we celebrate this fact that Jesus came into the world, not just for the house of Israel, but to gather all of his children From every tongue, tribe, and nation, from all four corners of the globe, he came to gather them to himself that they might be his children, walking in his ways and loving their heavenly father. And then Epiphany uh, gives way to the season of Lent when we remember Jesus' passion for us, his suffering on the cross as he bore our sins and as he covered our shame. And then Lent gives way to Easter when we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and the beginning of God's new creation that came about at Christ's resurrection. And then Easter will eventually give way to Pentecost or what many call ordinary time, which is that long season of the church and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit that the church might fulfill its mission and walk in the ways of Jesus in this world, that we might follow the one who has saved us. And then ordinary time gives way to Advent. And Advent is that last season in the Christian year, and is that season that as Christians, we, we look forward to God's coming again. When God will fulfill all that he has promised. And so during Advent, what we often do is we look back at the first coming as a guarantee that God will come again. And when he comes again, he will finish everything that he has begun. And so that's what we're celebrating over these, new, these next few weeks of Advent. And to help us in this, we're going to look at these first disciples of Jesus, Zechariah, Mary, Joseph, and John the Baptist, and, uh, because I think we have a lot to learn from them as they trusted in God's promises and as they longed for God to do what he said he would do and as they sat in that long silence waiting for him. And so this morning, as we reflect upon Zechariah, I want us to see that the silence gives way to song. All right, the silence gives way to song. I want you to notice here in the passage that Advent begins in silence. And you may or may not remember that Zechariah had spent about nine months in silence. 
And that's what verse 63 is alluding to. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loose and he spoke, blessing God. And what we see here is from silence to song. That's the flow of this passage. And what was the silence all about? You might remember that earlier in the book of Luke, in chapter 1, we learned that Zechariah and his wife were not able to have children. They had come to the age where the possibility of children was unthinkable. And this made them sad. Because they had no children. It made them sad. It made them feel incomplete. It made them feel cursed. It made them feel unseen. It made them feel unheard by God. And so when Zechariah, who was a priest, enters into the temple to perform his functions there, an angel of the Lord appears to him. And the angel says to him, do not be afraid. Your prayer has been heard and you will have a son and you shall call his name John. And so Zechariah, he hears this from the angel. He sees the angel and surely he is shocked. And like any of us, he would have been shocked. And then he speaks back to this angel and he says, how, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife has advanced in years. And the angel said, I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Do you see what's happening here? Zechariah is being forced into silence. He's being forced to stop talking so that he might begin reflecting upon God's promise. I want you to think about what the angel said. The angel comes to him and he says, look, God has heard your prayers. God has seen your tears and he is going to do something about it. And Zechariah starts talking. He wants confirmation. He wants something more than God's word. And so he says, but how will I know that God's word will come true? And the angel's like Dr. Evil, and he says, just stop talking. Stop talking and listen. And I think that this is very important for us because I think we, too, love to talk. We love to question God. We, we love to tell God what he should be doing or how he should be doing it. We love to talk about how he's disappointed us and how slow he is. We love to talk about how we don't understand what he's doing in the world. And because we don't understand what he's doing in the world, we struggle to take him at his word. But Advent is asking us to slow down. Advent is asking us to stop talking and to take God at his word and to begin reflecting upon his promises as we wait for him and as we wait for the day of the completion of all that he has said that he would do. And so for nine months, Zechariah sits in silence. Could you imagine being left alone with your thoughts? for nine months. I wonder what he thought about. I'm sure he began thinking about the sadness that he and Elizabeth had of not having a child and how they longed to tuck a child into bed and how they longed to read him bedtime stories and how, uh, what it would feel like to receive the embrace of their child and to watch him grow up and to get married and to get a job and buy his first camel and have his own uh, children. 
And then every time he would begin to think about this sadness, he would remember that Elizabeth was barren and they're past the age of having children. And so who or what could solve this for him? Who would be able to unite his longings with reality? And God said, I can do it. And and Zechariah says, I hear you, but can I trust you? And and surely, as he's reflecting upon his own disappointments, this led to even bigger disappointment. Surely, he began to think about the people of God. And surely, he began to think about God's silence over the last 400 years, because over the last 400 years, there'd been no prophetic voice. And so, like Zechariah, all of Israel had been left in silence to reflect upon God's promises and to consider God's ways as they waited for someone to unite all of their longings with reality. And so surely his silence, as he sat in it, he began to think then about the story of God and his people and how he had created his people to dwell with him in the garden and to live in that garden with him, knowing his love and knowing his care and knowing his provision and knowing his presence. And surely he began to reflect upon the state of Israel. Thinking, God, why do we live under Roman rule? Don't don't you remember that you promised to give us this land? Don't you remember that you promised to give us a king? Don't you remember that you promised that you would dwell with us? And so where are you? You promised that we would be this united nation under you and yet we're divided and the northern kingdom has gone off and they become a new people. In the southern kingdom, we lost our land and even though the Persians let us come back, the glory of your kingdom was never restored and we have remained a vassal state to the Persians and to the Medes and to the Greeks and now to the Romans. And so where is this joy? Where is this freedom? Where is this life that you had promised to us and and where are you? You promised peace and we live in fear. You said that we would walk in the light and we're surrounded by the darkness. You said that there would be life and there's death all around us and we hate this. Will you deliver us? How will you deliver us? When will you do this? What are we supposed to do? What should we do about this? And I think we're a lot like Zechariah. Filled with doubt, filled with anger, filled with disappointment, surrounded by darkness and death. And when we're confronted with these things, what do we do? Well, if you're like me, uh, you start talking, uh, you start yelling, uh, maybe like Oscar Roberts on uh, the weekend anchor desk, you say, fix it, just fix it, somebody fix it. And so we think, well, maybe if we could just get the right book and we could read these words, that would fix it. Or maybe we think if we could just gather a conference or a symposium and just get all the experts in a room and let them talk, and if we would just listen to them, then we could fix it. Or if we could just raise a bunch of money, then we would fix it. If we would just be nice, and if we could do good, and we could work harder, and we would come together as humanity, if we would post the right things on the World Wide Web, then that would fix it. And everything would be okay. But here's the deal. Advent isn't about advice. And Advent is not a technique for fixing all of our problems. Advent is not the theme of maximizing our human potential. In fact, as Fleming Rutledge says, Advent begins 
where human potential ends. Right? Advent begins where human potential ends. I want you to think about what's going on here in the passage. In verse 6, it tells us that Elizabeth and Zechariah were righteous. Elizabeth and Zechariah were religious elites. They were the right people. Zechariah was a priest. And Elizabeth was from the daughters of Aaron. They have the perfect pedigree. Verse 6 even tells us that they walked blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. They were a religious, a social, and a moral power couple. But being the right kinds of people did not fix it. Being the right kind of people did not take away their suffering. They still went to bed weeping that they did not have children. And Israel was the right people. Israel was the people of God. And they had everything that God had promised. They had all of the ordinance of God. All the promises of God. All the prophets of God. They had the temple of God. They had the sacrifices of God. But they still were waiting for all of their longings to come into reality. And here's the deal. Israel was at their end. Zechariah and Elizabeth were at their end. We find ourselves day after day at our end. And that is what Advent does. It invites us to be at the end and that's okay. It invites us into this silence in order that we might be honest about our need. It invites us into this silence so that we might come to grips with the fact that our best laid plans often go awry. And that our best intentions often turn against us. It's as Rutledge says, Advent teaches us to recognize God's grace and to turn aside from our own devices and to wait in the darkness with patience for the promised time of fulfillment. And this is what uh, most of our Christmas carols are all about. They are about God breaking into the silence. They are about God breaking into the darkness, right? Silent night, holy night, and God breaks in. Or think about our Advent theme this year, the glorious song of old. It comes from that beautiful carol, it came upon a midnight clear. And listen to some of the verses, some of the lyrics. All ye beneath life's crushing load, whose forms are bending low, who toil along the climbing way with painful steps and slow. Look now for glad and golden hours. Come swiftly on the wing. Oh, rest beside the weary road and hear the angels sing. You see, Advent invites us to be silent and to rest and to wait for God's fulfillment. It invites us to trust that, that God will do what he has promised, that God will meet us in our need and in our pain and in our suffering and in our sorrow and in our guilt and in our shame. Advent really is a time for us to be honest about this fact that our suffering and our sorrows and the suffering and the sorrows of this world are just too big for us. 
It's a time for us to admit that if Jesus can't save us, then we cannot be saved. And so Advent really is a time for us to to come to God with our tears so that he might dry them. It's a time for us to come to God, to bring our sickness to God so that he might heal us, to bring our fears to God so that he might calm us, to bring our sins to God so that we might be forgiven, to bring our suffering to God so that we might be redeemed, and to bring our shame to God so that we might be covered. And so Zechariah hears God's promises, and he says, well, what will you give me so that I can believe you? And God says to him, My word ought to be enough. My word ought to be enough. And so for nine months, Zechariah sits in silence with the promise. And he's left there in that silence to reflect upon the character and the promises of God. And then when God fulfills this promise, that silence then comes to an end, and the singing begins. Look at verse 64. And immediately his mouth was opened, and his tongue was loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. The child is born, the silence ends, and he begins to sing. God does what he does, and the people of God, they sing. Then verse 67, and his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, and singing. And notice the song. And what I want you to notice is that he's, as he begins to sing in, in 67 and following, the song is not about himself. The song is not about how he is now better. The song is not even about his son. The song is not about humanity coming together and teaching the world to sing. This song is not about what we must now do. The song is about what God has done and how God will fulfill his promises. And that really is the beauty of Advent. The beauty of Advent is that the silence of the singing will give way to song. And I I think it's amazing. In, In verse 66, the people ask this question, what then will this child be? And the answer of that question is then found in this song in verses 68 through 80. And there are only two verses in the entire song about John. 76 and 77. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of the salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. And this is amazing to me because Zechariah is holding his child in his arms. He's probably stroking the brow of his child's uh, head. And he says to him, son, you will be a pointer. You will not be the restorer of all things. You will not be the fixer of all things. But you will be an encouragement to a people who are sitting in darkness. You will be an encouragement to a people who are surrounded by the shadow of death. And you will be the one who encourages them that God will do what he has promised. And that God will shed light into the darkness and God will bring life out of death. I hope you see the beauty in this. Because what has happened to Zechariah is that in his silence, His eyes and his heart and his mouth have been lifted up to God. 
They haven't turned in on himself. He has not begun to sing, woe is me. He doesn't turn his eyes out then towards human solutions, but it causes him to sing of the one who promises to make all things new. And so as he sings, he begins to reflect upon this covenant-keeping God, verses 68 through 74. This God that we looked at through the whole book of Joshua, this God who had promised to restore Eden, this God who had promised to be our God and the God of our children, this God who had promised that his son would sit on the throne of David and would rule and reign in peace and prosperity forever. And I want you to notice that this covenant-keeping God will, verse 74, deliver us from the hand of our enemies. He will deliver us from the hand of our enemies. You know, at the time, most of the Jews assumed that the Messiah would come and save them from Roman imperialism. That when the Messiah would come, he would be this military and this political leader. But the Messiah is more than that. Notice what the Messiah will come to do. Notice the purpose of his deliverance in verse 74, that we might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. This is really important because for many of us, we too have collapsed Christianity onto politics and onto military might. And what we have done is now politics has become our critical theory upon which everything collapses. And everything now is a litmus test for a political view or for a political statement or for a political identity. The cars we drive, pickup truck or Prius, it's a political statement. The clothes you wear, the radio you listen to, the books you read, And for many of us, what is true is that power and might and politics have become our savior. It's the thing we always listen to. It's the thing we always talk about. It's the thing if we just vote the right way, we will be saved. It's the thing that we sing about. And this is a problem for those of us on the right and for those of us on the left. We're all doing this. We're all collapsing everything into this. But here's the deal. No political power, no political or military might will be able to free us to serve him without fear and in holiness and righteousness. And this is what our God wants to do for us. Our God does not want to just free us to do whatever we want to do. Our God does not want to free us just to become whatever we want to be. Our God will come to free us to be his, to live for him, to be his children, to serve him in the darkness of this world, to expel the darkness of the world, and to expel the darkness of our own hearts so that we might love him and serve him in joy and in freedom. You see, God's promise is to deliver us from all of our enemies so that we might be remade, 
so that we might be transformed, so that we might become more and more like him, to be a people who love him, to be a people who serve him with great joy, to be a people who walk in this world to extend his rule throughout the entire earth because we know his love, we know he's good, we know he's kind. And because we know him, we then love him in return. And as we know his love and as we love him, he then sends us out to love our neighbors just as he has loved us. And this is why Zechariah begins to sing of a God, verse 77, who will forgive our sins. I want you to think about this for a second. Please don't brush over it. God will forgive our sins. You hear this over and over again. I know you're bored by it. This really is amazing. We have a God whom we have sinned against. We have a God whom we have said, I don't care what you have promised. I don't care what you do. I don't care what you have said. I do not trust you. And we have a God who forgives us. And he is a God who forgives real live sinners. He forgives people who lie, who cheat, who steal, who doubt, who are proud, who are arrogant. He forgives people who really hurt people. He forgives people who really have destroyed other people's lives. And this is why Paul says, I'm the chief of sinners. Because who was Paul? But he was one who had actually killed other Christians. And he says, God saved me to show you that he is merciful. That he is filled with grace. And there's nothing that you could do that could not be forgiven by him. Y'all, one of the things that causes so much darkness in this world is our own self-righteousness. And God did not save us because of the good things that we have done. God did not save us because somehow we're basically better than our oppressors or better than our enemies. He saved us when we were yet still sinners. And I want you to notice what lies behind his salvation. It is his tender mercy. Look at verse 78. Because of the tender mercy of our God. The tender mercy of God. What is it that we like to communicate about God? As you go out into the world, what is it that we are communicating about him? Is it anger? Is it rage? Is it elitism? Is it disappointment? Is it rules and regulations? What brings about salvation? The tender mercy of God. What will save us? His mercy. What will save us? His compassion. What will save us? His grace. What will save us? His love. What will save us? God will save us. Or we will not be saved. And this is why Zechariah sings. He sings because of God. He sings because of who he is and what he is like. Now here's the deal. We will only sing after a long silence. We will only sing after we get honest about the darkness of our own souls. We will only sing when we admit that we do not have all the answers. We will only sing once we recognize that we cannot save ourselves. We, we will not sing until we recognize that even our best deeds have an underbelly to them. And then, 
if by God's tender mercy and if by his Holy Spirit he would lift our eyes to see him and to see his kindness and to take him at his word that he will return, then we will sing. Because when he returns, what will he do? But he will remove the darkness and bring light. What will he do? He will turn death into life. And he will remove violence and bring about peace. And that's what the table is about. This table is God's promise in the midst of the silence. It is his promise in the midst of the darkness. It is his promise in the midst of our waiting. And God is saying through the table, you can trust me. You can sing of me because I will come again. And we say this week after week after week when we come to the table, that uh, this table is God's promise. That as often as we eat this bread and we drink this cup, what do we do? We proclaim his death until he comes again. The table is God's promise to us. And we are now invited to take him at his word, to take him at this meal that he will come again. And this really is why Christians sing. This really is what Christians long for. In fact, it's the way the Bible ends. Come, Lord Jesus, come. And why do we want Jesus to come? Because he is filled with mercy. Because he is a God who delights to forgive. He is a God who covers our shame. He is the God who will deliver us from all of his and our enemies. He is the one who will place darkness with light, death with life, sorrow with joy, tears with laughter, and he will fill the silence with songs of his love.